I'm going to invite you to just take a moment to um, remind ourselves why we are gathered here and to listen uh, to the word of God from the Psalms. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Let's bow in a moment of prayer together. Lord God, in this short time that we have together this morning, open our ears and our eyes to see your vision for this place and our part within it. Teach us, teach us and hear our prayers and enable us for service wherever that may take us. To your praise and glory. Amen. For the past few weeks, this current teaching series, Investing in Kingdom Causes, has had one goal and that is to focus our minds and our hearts on this day. Today's Consecration Sunday, and we're being asked to underwrite uh, the largest budget in the history of this church. And the numbers, in some ways, are staggering and overwhelming to me. I'm not a numbers kind of guy. When I came to Redeemer back in 1988, uh, we had a budget, if I can remember that far back, of about fifty dollars or $60,000. Today, it's over $1.2 million. Only because our congregation has demonstrated great faith in God over the years, over the last 30 years, have we been able to do what we've done in ministry in this community and beyond. And the question is, will we rise to meet the challenge of today and continue to fund the mission that God has given us to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ? I believe we will, in part because the people of this congregation have met even bigger challenges in the past. Years ago, when this congregation was small and struggling, this church was sustained by a small number of families. Then in 1977, when the first building on this site was built, God gave vision and persistence to the congregation at that time to step out in faith and start preparing for the future. In 1994, we took on a $1.5 million mortgage to build this worship space in a sizable part of this current building with about 200 folks in our congregation at that time. In 2004, we added another 1.2 million for our children and student ministry areas. We added a little more to the debt in 2013 to re-roof a good share of the building and, and repair some parking lot and taking on projects and indebtedness was more than a stretch each time, it was a giant leap of faith. But the money has come in, the mortgage is being paid and we continued by the grace of God, to have all of our needs met. More than that, we've been able to do a lot of outreach in this community and beyond. We've been able to support uh, several missionaries. We've been able to build a church in Zimbabwe. We've been able to send lots of our kids to summer church camp and so many more things. Some new opportunities are now before us. We will add another pastor to our staff in, on July 1st, which adds some significant cost to our budget. We're also anticipating, as you know, a Miracle Sunday on October the 22nd. Many of you would have gotten that letter in the mail a few weeks ago to help reduce the debt or eliminate that debt on our current facility so that we can begin to think about and plan for more ministry going forward, maybe even another building addition 
in the near future to accommodate our continued growth. The question today is, will we go through the open doors that God has placed before us? And the answer is, it all depends on us. If we have faith to believe and courage to take the first step, I believe God will bless those efforts. The question is not, are there any open doors? Because the answer is always yes. The real address some important questions like, what does God say about the way, the way we spend our money? And what is our grateful response to the generosity of God in our life? And today we're going to be talking about how we can invest our money so that we get the greatest return on our investment. And I'm sure that all of us have daydreamed about a day when suddenly we were given a large amount of money, a, a large sum of money that we weren't expecting. Let's suppose that you suddenly found yourself with an extra $100,000 today. How would you spend it? The editors of USA Today asked that very question in an issue some years ago, and they went to six of the leading experts, financial counselors in the country for their advice on how to invest $100,000 in the economy of that day in order to get the best possible return. And the answers were quite revealing. One man said he would divide the money between utility stocks, blue chip stocks, and zero coupon bonds. The second said he'd put half in stocks, put it uh, part in bonds, and keep the rest in cash. And yet another expert favored putting the whole thing in high quality growth stocks. One man recommended putting the entire 100,000 in a money market account in a safe bank. Another said he would spend the money, or he would spread the money among 10 over-the-counter stocks. And then the last expert called for an even four-way split among U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, global bonds, and foreign currency. And just reading all of that made me very confused. Because I don't have 100000 floating around today to do anything with, so I don't stress about it. But these were the, 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 uh, the, this was the advice of the experts on how to invest to get the most for your dollar. The truth is we live in changing times. The things we used to count on no longer always seem so reliable. It may surprise you to learn that the Bible speaks about money and the things that money can buy in over a thousand verses of scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell. 16 of his 38 parable stories to deal with money. The Bible's a book that's filled with practical advice and solemn warnings concerning the awesome power of money. Why? Because our money is our life. Take a look at your next paycheck. It re represents a portion of your life that you will never get back. It stands for one week or two weeks or a month of your life, time spent working that is now gone forever. It takes your life to make money. And when your life is over, your money will be gone, you will leave for some other place, and your money will go to somebody else. So consider this, when you give someone a gift, maybe say $75, you are really giving them a portion of your life that it took to earn that $75. You're not just giving a gift that's an amount of money, you're giving that part of your life that it took you to earn that $75. You see, our money is our life. It costs our life to earn it. 
No wonder the Bible has so much to say about it. What we really need then is clear instruction by someone who knows what they're talking about. And uh, the world is filled with people who cannot clearly explain what they know, and it's also filled with people who can very clearly explain things they know nothing about. Recently, I ran across an example of the latter category. A young boy brought home a cookbook called Perfect Pumpkin Pie Recipes. It was from his afternoon kindergarten class uh, at a local elementary school, strictly for the humor value this morning. I want to read to you some of the recipes. Here's the first one. Put dough, vinegar, and sugar together in a pumpkin. Add sprinkles. Bake at 350 degrees for two minutes. That was Jeffrey's idea of a pumpkin pie. Stephanie said, sugar, apples, strawberries, and cinnamon, and pumpkin. Put more sugar in it. Put in the oven and let it cook for four minutes and 22 hours. <laughs> Nina said, put some butter, get some sugar, some ketchup, mix it a little bit. Then you put in some pickles and some meatballs, slice the pumpkin, get some pumpkin pop, put it all in a bowl, and then put it in the oven for four minutes. Apples, bananas, lots of sugar, put it in the oven for 100 hours, says Jessica. Get all the seeds out of the pumpkin, put it in a pan, get some dough, put sugar on the seeds. That's all you need, Nicholas. You cut the pumpkin, here's the last one, you cut the pumpkin with a knife, then with the knife you swish it around, then you put it in the oven for 13 seconds. <laughs> now, do any of those recipes sound real appetizing to you or strange? You see, all of them are perfectly clear in their instructions, aren't they? But when you read them, it's also perfectly clear that these children have never made a pumpkin pie, and maybe questionable whether they've ever seen a pumpkin pie. But it does drive home the point that when it comes to truly important subjects in our life, we need someone who can advise us, who can explain themselves clearly, who knows what they're talking about, and that obviously applies to how we invest our financial resources. So with that, we turn today to the words of Jesus. When we do, we find that Jesus meets all of those qualifications. He, when he spoke about money, his words were perfectly clear and easy to understand. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he knows what he's talking about. And we can trust his words to be authoritative and accurate and applicable to our situation. The text today is from the Gospel according to Luke the 19th chapter, beginning with verse 11. This is a story that Jesus told, a parable called the parable of the pounds or the parable of the ten servants. Jesus told this story to his followers in his closing days uh, of ministry here on earth uh, when many uh, of them uh, mistakenly were expecting the kingdom of God to just suddenly appear uh, right then and there. And on one level, this parable lays out an investment strategy for the followers of Jesus Christ. On another level, it describes two different ways of looking, of looking at life. But it is Jesus' last teaching before his final week in Jerusalem. Uh, so I think it's pretty important that we hear what Jesus has to say. The story begins uh, this way. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said... A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Jesus was speaking here about himself. And this is a reference to the second coming, that he will come back to earth at some point in time. 
Before he left, he, the, the nobleman called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, Invest this for me while I'm gone. Now here's the picture that Jesus is painting. It's of a very wealthy landowner who's leaving on this long trip to a distant land, and he expects to be gone for many months. But he eventually promises that he will return. In the meantime, he calls ten of his most trusted servants together, and he gives them one mina each and some very specific instructions. Now, a mina was a Greek coin. The coinage system worked like this. The lowest level was a drachma, uh, equal to about one day's wages. 100 drachmas equaled one mina. 60 minas equaled one talent. Therefore, a mina represented about 100 days wages or about three months pay. So in, in today's terms, that might be roughly $10,000. It's not a fortune, but it's enough to invest if a person knows what they're doing. So each man was given his mina. And the master says, put this money to work. Actually, the English translation is a little weak at this point. The Greek word used here comes straight from the business world that means to buy and to sell and to trade. It's a word that from the trading pits of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It means use your money and make more money. Invest it. Don't sit on it. See, in our day, we might apply to things like stocks or bonds or gold coins or rental property or condos or investment art or maybe even baseball cards. If you have some money, don't waste it. Don't hide it. Don't fritter it away. Use it to make some more money. That's not heresy. That's sound biblical advice. So off the master goes, and his servants are waving farewells. His caravan disappears over the horizon. And days pass, and then weeks pass, and months pass, and even years go by. And some say the master is never going to return. Meanwhile, the servants wait patiently for his return. And then late one afternoon, just before supper, a cloud of dust appears on the horizon. And at first it's just a tiny speck, and then billows up until it fills the sky. And from the distance comes the cry, He's back! He's back! The master had returned. And his long journey had been crowned with success. He left as a nobleman. He comes back as the king. His first order of business is clear. After he was crowned king, this is verse 15, he returned and called in his servants, in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. Now it's been a long time, but he's not forgotten his words of instructions. After all, it was his money they were investing, and now the master wants to know what the servants have done with his money. Is he angry? No, not at all. Are his servants in trouble? No, not if they did what he asked them to do. Is he hoping to catch them goofing off? To the contrary, he hopes to catch them doing something right so that he can reward them. For those who have obeyed the master's words, this day holds no terror. Now the master gave ten minas, to ten men with instructions to use the money to make more money. How well did they do? The first two give their report, verse 16. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. That's a profit of about a hundred, what, thousand percent? Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. That's 
profit of 500%. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. Now these two fellows have done all right. The first fellow started out with one minor. He ends up with 11. The second guy started out with one. He ends up with six. What's the difference? Who knows? Maybe the first guy went into real estate and the others into pork bellies. Who knows? But um, maybe one, they were both playing the stock market. One got luckier than the other. The point is they invested their money. And they invested wisely, and they both produced a healthy, healthy profit for their master. Now notice how the reward is all out of proportion to the work that was done. You made 10 minus. That's excellent. Now go rule over 10 cities. Which 10? <laughs> hey, I don't know. You pick them. Okay, I'll take Miami and San Antonio and DeWitt and Bath and... You know, Atlanta and Seattle and four villages on the Riviera. Great. Sounds good. They're all yours. Just like that, the servant is rewarded beyond his wildest dreams. All that he did to invest his master's money and, uh, is now paying off. His, that his master has become the king. He shares in the master's kingdom. In his secret fantasies, perhaps this guy thought about, maybe the master would let me keep some of the money when he comes back. But he not only gets to keep the money, he gets to rule over 10 cities. He'll never find a better deal than that. One other man is yet to be heard from, and his report is considerably different as well as the master's response. Look at verse 20. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and I kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops that you didn't plant. See, here's a guy who decided to play it safe. He never wasted his, he never invested his master's money. He never put it in the stock market. He never bought a savings bond. He never bought an Al K-Line rookie card with it. Worse yet, he didn't even put it in the bank, which might have earned him a little bit of money. Instead, he took the mina and he wrapped it up in a bandana and he hid it behind his couch in the living room. And once a week, when nobody else was looking, he checked to see if it was still there. Week after week, he would look peek over the couch and look down and see the edge of the bandana and he was satisfied because the money was safe and he would go about his business without a care in the world why would a man do such a strange thing why wouldn't he at least put it in the bank and let it draw a little bit of interest the answer is twofold first he didn't understand the character of his master he saw him as Ebenezer Scrooge who a guy who would hoard his money foreclose on the poor at a moment's notice to get rich off of somebody else's misfortune. And secondly, he didn't believe the master's word. That is, he didn't think his master would really come back. The last thing in the world this servant expected to see was to see that master come back to town. So Mr. Play It Safe knows the truth now and it's too late. He's been caught, not crooked, he's not deceitful, he's something much worse. He's been cautious, lazy, and unbelieving he was cautious when he should have taken some risk he was lazy when he should have been industrious and he was unbelieving when he should have taken the master's word now he's going to pay the price for that negligence and for the that all the foolish excuses he was making listen to verse 22 your wick, you wicked servant the king roared your own words condemn you if you knew that I am a hard man who takes what isn't mine and crop and harvest crops that I didn't plant. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. 
These words speak for themselves. The master's anger centers around one undisputable point. The servant had not even bothered to put the money in the bank where it could have gained a little interest. He didn't care enough to do that. So listen carefully. The master is not angry because the servant failed to make 10 minus. That's not the issue. Profit or lack of profit is not the point of this story. After all, the king rules an empire. He's got all the money he ever needs. He'll never spend all that he has in a lifetime. So you say, why is the master so angry? Because this servant didn't even try to use his money for the master's advantage. It's not the amount, that's not the issue. But this man was first unbelieving, and then he is disobedient, and then he's overly cautious, and finally he is just plain lazy. He didn't try because he didn't care. That's why the master's angry. And as I said, this man is about to have a rude awakening. The master is about to prove him right when he said, you're a hard man. So look at verse 24. This, then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant, give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Some pretty shocking words of Jesus. How can the master be so cold-hearted? How can he take away money from one man and give it to another man? The answer is he can do it because it was his money to start with. It's not like he's taking away the servant's money. He's not. He's taking his own money that the servant didn't even bother to invest. And who can blame him? The master naturally wants the greatest return he can get. He so he takes the money away from the unproductive servant and he gives it to the one who has gotten the greatest rate of return. Now are you tracking with me this morning? This is a picture of God. And this is a picture of how God is going to treat us. I suppose the greatest shock is not that the master takes the money away from the unproductive servant. The shock is that he gives it to the man who has the most money. So what's the application of this story for us? A couple of things. First, there are people who say, you know, I want it my way in life. I'm going to get all that I can out of this life. And that's an attitude. Uh, this is the attitude of people who don't know what God has to offer. Uh, they have their own plans. They insist on living life on their own terms. They sometimes succeed in the short term because of their very determination to get what they want. However, enough is never enough, and the hunger for power and prestige and wealth is never satisfied, and they're so preoccupied with their possessions that they are never, ever truly free. Secondly, most of us are so plagued by an economic concerns, things like, can I get the right job? Can I keep my job? Can I make enough money to pay my bills? That we never get around to moving beyond that in life and discover real meaning. We don't truly understand God's kingdom and our place in that kingdom, and in the end, none of the stuff that we stress about in this life is really gonna matter, is it? The servant who, number three, the servant who kept his mina safe represents people who go through life cautious and conservative, 
trying to hurt no one, break no rules, make no enemies. They're determined not to consume, just leave everything in life as they found it. But this way of living is unrealistic, and it gets in the way of people who do plant and build and do great things for God. Number four, the better way to go through life is as a faithful steward. We're either fruitful or we're unfruitful. If we're, if we're fruitful, we're alive, and we're making good things happen in this world, and we're leaving a legacy because we understand that we need to leave behind more than we found. We leave life a better place for those who follow us. And the last one is Christ followers are people in whom God lives. We may be frail, we may be imperfect, but somehow in this earthen vessel there is a treasure. And the Spirit of God lives in us, and fruitfulness means that we invest our lives, we invest our jobs, we invest our money, our reputation, our security to provide an inheritance. Investing in the future means that as the body of Christ, we're going to be more loving, more caring, more supportive, more involved, because, because it matters to the next generation. We're gonna, there's going to be more justice, more equality, more compassion, more liberty in the world, because we have lived. You see, the ultimate goal is to hear the words of verse 17. Well done, the king exclaimed. You're a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I have entrusted to you. So you will be governor of more as your reward. May God give us the insight to hear this parable today and to apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Creator God, you whispered the world into being and you made us from the dust of the earth. You've inspired writers and poets to record the beauty of nature and speak of your glory throughout Scripture. God, we are so grateful this morning to hear your word, to know that you touch our lives in so many ways, and you call us back to give of that that you have given to us, to invest in the next generation, the people that will follow us, so that your work continues in the world. God, help us to see the truth of this story today and to put ourselves into this story so that we know um, exactly how we are going to be treated by the master someday god open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and every part of us today to to uh, your gracious care we pray in jesus name